Hey guys, welcome back to the Take a Seat, Not a Side podcast hosted by Kelsey and Brian Halverson. This is a couples podcast where we dive into all things pop culture with our own special twist. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. So we have a really special episode today. If you look back, we have an episode called Audiobooks from uh, about a month ago, where we discussed some books that we had been listening to on Audible and whatnot. And I talked about a book called Whirlwind, The American Revolution and the War That Won It. And that was written by an author named John Furling. John Furling is what we would call a master historian. He has probably studied and wrote about the Revolutionary War as much as anybody on the planet. And because of that, he has appeared on PBS, the History Channel, C-SPAN. A couple quotes on John from the media. On Furling's book titled Jefferson and Hamilton, the Washington Post said, John Furling brings to bear the considerable talents that have won him acclaim, a deep knowledge of the era, a graceful writing style, and a voice that captures a reader's attention from the first page to the last. Furling is so adept at telling a story that the reader will learn much about the transition from British colonies to a new American nation. Dan Rather on John Furling's book titled Independence said, Mesmerizing, masterful, history written with the gravitational pull of a good novel. One of my big... One of my big takeaways from the book, and anyone who has me on Facebook has seen this, is how important John Adams was to the revolution. He doesn't get the credit of a Washington or a Thomas Jefferson by most people, but he really was on that level of importance. And not only does John's book does a really good job of doing that, but he also does a good job of showing how important John's wife Abigail was to the cause. And while he doesn't go too much into Abigail's history, he literally titled the book after a letter that John and Abigail shared between them during the war. They described the war as a whirlwind. So all that being said, I reached out to John and said, Hey, John, we do not host a history podcast. And I promise you all, that's a good thing. It would be not a very good history podcast. But we host a couple's podcast and um, asked him if he'd want to come on and talk about the dynamics between John and Abigail Adams. And John actually said, yeah, like, uh, which which to me is also... And John actually said, yeah. And John said, yeah. And John said, yeah, just let me know when. And to me, that kind of shows. And to me, that kind of shows a lot about um, the type of person that John Furling is. And you're going to you're going to grasp that a lot if you listen to this interview he is truly passionate about the Revolutionary War, and you can tell that he just really likes to share everything. He, he's got so much knowledge. I mean, you don't write, I think he said he's got 13 books out there right now. Um, you don't write 13 books unless like you really enjoy sharing your knowledge. I mean, we originally said that we would talk for about a half hour, and we went well over an hour. 
And while the plan was to focus on John and Abigail Adams, we end up talking about a lot of other cool stuff. So definitely give it a listen. If you want to learn more about John, you can go right to his website, and that's johnferling.com. It's J-O-H-N-F-E-R-L-I-N-G.com. On his website, he has a more detailed biography posted, along with a lot of pictures, and then obviously links to all of the books that he's written. So that's johnferling.com. And now, without further ado, enjoy the interview. So before we get into John and Abigail Adams, I, I have to ask, because in the, the TV show Turn Washington Spies at the Surrender uh, at Yorktown, they depict the British Army playing their, uh, playing their music, and then Marcus de Lafayette, or Marquise de Lafayette, turns to the Continental Army Band and says, play the Yankee Doodle. And that was kind of like an insult to the to the British Army. Um, did that actually? You know if that actually happened? I, I don't think it did. I, I would put a question mark after that. I know that that bands were playing. There was a French band playing, a British band played, an American band uh, played, and there was the old story that the British band played "The World Turned Upside Down," which was a popular. A piece of music at the time, but that's been debunked now. I don't think that that occurred. But um, so I, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not aware of uh, of uh, Lafayette telling the band to to play anything. Uh, there could have happened, but uh, you know, uh, who who knows? Were you saying that um, that happened at a at the surrender at Saratoga, though? It did happen. Yeah, it's Saratoga. I know for a fact that is this is was uh, recorded by one of the sol- one of the American soldiers who was present at the at the surrender that that the American band did play uh, Yankee Doodle. Now, there was no love lost between the two the two armies. Uh, the British Army had burned a lot of property, destroyed a lot of property as they came down. Through through New York to Saratoga, they unleashed the Indians. Uh, there were some atrocities committed, and so there was a, a good deal of venom on the part of the Americans toward the British. So I suspect they played Yankee Doodle just to rub it in as much as <laughs> as they possibly could. Can you tell everyone listening like that song wasn't a happy song? Well. It- there was some meaning behind that song, right? Oh, yeah. I don't know much about the history of the song. I know that the the, the New Englanders called themselves Yankees uh, at the time, and I, I guess it was probably just a popular song in in New England before the war, maybe. But i I've never I've never researched uh, the song, so I can't tell you very much about, about the history. Uh, uh, but, but there's no question that that um, you know was that it, it was something that existed within the army, and and was played some during the during the war, and and all of the armies at that time, American, British, French, whatever the armies in Europe, the same thing. They had uh, drum and fife corps, and when they went into battle, uh, those musicians would play and especially beat their their drums. And I imagine uh, if you were a soldier and you saw the enemy marching towards you, you could see the sun 
uh, glinting off of those shiny bayonets that were coming towards you. And you could hear uh, the steady thump, thump, thump of, of drums. It would have been pretty ominous. I mean, it's been frightening enough as it was, and that would have only added uh, to to that. But I think they used music to to inspire their their own troops and to terrorize the other side. Any any advantage you could get, <laughs> you know. I mean, this is grim grim business. They they were trying to. It was an existential experience they were trying to stay alive and they were trying to kill the other guys so they could stay alive and uh, so any any advantage that you could get fine and and as i said it, there there was a lot of uh, enmity from one side to to the other I, I mentioned a while ago that the americans were bitter toward the british when they when burgoyne's army invaded new york and in 1777, but by the same token, the British all through the war looked upon the Americans as, I mean, they were rebels and they were fighting against their king and, and uh, uh, they, 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 you know, their job was to put down the American insurgency. So there wasn't a, a great deal of love lost um, between the, the, the rival armies. Yeah, you bring up the band and when you when you see that on TV or in a movie, uh, my first thought is, wouldn't those people be better served with a bayonet in their hands? But um, I think your book does such a good job at explaining how how big morale was um, that you could lose morale real quick, and you needed that morale to keep. A lot of these guys weren't professional soldiers, so to keep their their hearts and their minds uh, strong to the cause, um, you got to you got to do something to keep them. I guess literally marching forward. Sure, <laughs> the, the the men in the British Army and in the French Army were professional soldiers. They they went in with the expectation that they would stay in the army for twenty years or longer. I mean, it was a it was a career for them. But in Washington's army, throughout most of the war, at least half of the men were militiamen. And they, they were generally called up for about three months at a time. They might have to serve six months, but, but not longer than that. So these were guys who were farmers one day, and then they were in, they were militiamen the next day. They didn't get a heck of a lot of training before they, they went into to battle. Uh, a lot of them, I suppose, were exuberant about it, but a lot of them wished they were someplace else other than than on a, on a battlefield. And um, especially as, as if, they got, if they got called up and, and had to serve, uh, and they were a farmer and they had to serve at harvest time, for example, I mean, this was, a, this, this was their livelihood. If they weren't there to work the farm, then the crops didn't get to market and uh, the, the family faced uh, a shortfall and in uh, in cash for for the next year, so um, a lot of them weren't too happy. They just they, they would have preferred to be uh, someplace else, and a lot of them just like in World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, every every war you can think of, a lot of them didn't care a whole heck of a lot for their officers. Uh, you know, they, they 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 thought their officers were aristocratic and elitist and they were giving them orders and giving them all kinds of 
of jobs that they resented having to perform and, and whatever. So, but, and that, that, so the American army was about half, half militiamen. When the, when the war started, the, the men who came into the Continental Army served for one year, and then they were, they were mustered out. Their obligation was over. And from uh, at, at the end of 1775, virtually every man went home. And Washington went to Congress. He said, look, this is no way to run an army. You can't recruit uh, a new army every year and get them trained. And Congress refused to to change that, that policy. Most Americans in 1775 were really wary of what they called standing armies or professional armies. They had read enough history to know that throughout history, uh, autocrats, monarchs, used armies to gain more power and to exploit the people. They, they didn't want this in this country. So they Initially, they told Washington, no, it's going to be one-year enlistments. But the, the campaign of 1776 was so disastrous for the Americans. We almost lost the war in 1776. Thomas Paine always referred to it as the dark time because we came so close to, to losing the, the war then. So Washington went back to Congress again, and he said, look, I... You gotta, we've got to start recruiting men for longer periods of time. And Congress, uh, realizing, as Franklin said, we, we have to all hang together or we're going to hang separately. <laughs> so they, they knew their, their neck was in the noose. So Congress relented and they went over to a policy where men would come in uh, who, who came into the Continental Army would serve for three years or the duration of the war. So they were really signing kind of a, an open-ended contract. If the war went on for five years or 10 years, that's how long they were going to be in. And uh, there were certainly men at Yorktown in 1781 who had come in four years earlier in January, four, four and a half years earlier in January of 1777 uh, uh, when Congress went to the three years or the, the duration. So they did have a standing army and it generally totaled anywhere from maybe uh, 7,000 to 10 or 11,000 and then all the other men were militiamen. I mean, it makes a good point. You know, you train people, you get them ready for war and then you replace them a year later. So definitely not a way to build a strong force. Yeah, and I, you know, there's, there is something to, to be said for battle-hardened veterans, that once you've experienced combat and you go back into it, you may be reluctant to go back into it a second or third time, but you are a better soldier. You have a better idea of what's what's going on mm -hmm. and just in the chaos and confusion of, uh, of battle. For sure, yeah. And they were better trained soldiers too. I mean, they, they were using muskets flintlock muskets in the um, in the revolutionary there were some rifles but they were cumbersome to load the same as a musket so today i mean we're familiar we hear all the time about automatic rifles that can fire you know zillions or rounds a uh, minute it seems like but but even a skilled soldier um in the british army who had soldiered for eight or ten years and was thoroughly experienced, 
could only get off about three shots a minute. You fire your shot, and then it, there's a cumbersome process of loading the musket, and you're trying to do it while people are shooting at you or coming at you with a bayonet, pretty harrowing experience, but they they were able to uh, to do it um, and uh, about three times uh, in in a minute. So, uh, they, but and, and they were better off, obviously than the militiamen who just uh, you know we we think that I mean there's sort of a myth in, in American history that everybody always owned a weapon, but they didn't. I mean, you know, most of these, a lot of these guys didn't own horses. They didn't own uh, muskets. Some some did, but but not everybody did. So they weren't all that familiar uh, with the, the weaponry. They had to learn it. And uh, so again, that was one reason Washington wanted men who would be in the army for a long period of time and be better trained when they went into, into battle. Yeah. Well, and like you said, I mean, yes, there's still unexpected things that are going to occur, but the more training you have and the more experience you have, the better you can react to those things, which with the other side, having professional army, you know, you need that. Right. And I, I, it's interesting. You mentioned unexpected things happening. I, I think uh, one of, one of the things that I've come away with from, from my research on the revolutionary war is that Washington was always surprised. Well, all of the commanders were. You, ne- you never knew what was going to happen when you when you go into a battle. They, they had battle plans uh, prepared, and this is true in World War One, World War Two, whatever. But the instant the fighting starts, the battle plans oftentimes go out the window. It's just chaos from from that point on. I mean, you. You have a lieutenant or a captain that you're following, and he's his duty is to do such and such. You know when 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 the battle begins, but if he gets shot, and and he's taken down in the first few seconds of the battle, then who's there to to lead the guy? I mean, it just really becomes um, a chaotic uh, situation. And and again, I I think Washington was was always leery about going into battles he, he did fight obviously i'm not saying that he he didn't but he he was fully aware that uh this was kind of an uncontrolled situation that things would happen in battles that couldn't be anticipated and remember washington was uh, he was really a, an amateur soldier he he had soldiered as a young man and uh, it commanded, in fact, Virginia's army in the French and Indian War in the 1750s. But then he went home and he was a farmer and a businessman at Mount Vernon. He spent the, the great bulk of his adult life as a farmer and a, and a businessman. And um, so he was, he was really an amateur soldier, but that, that's not true of the, um, of the British officers. Or the French officers, they're they're professionals. And in the in the last four years of the war, Washington's commanding the Continental Army, and Sir Henry Clinton is commanding the British Army. And they're essentially the same age. Washington is 
46 years old in 1778. Clinton takes command of the British Army in 1778, is 48 years old. So they're basically the same age. But Clinton had spent 33 years in the British Army. He had fought in two wars before the Revolutionary War. He'd been wounded seriously in the uh, in Germany in a battle in the in the Seven Years' War in 1760. So, I mean, he was thoroughly a professional soldier, kind of a master strategist and tactician. And Washington was um, really an amateur who was kind of learning on the go. So I, I don't mean to disparage Washington, because Washington grew during the war. He learned and he became a much better leader as, as times went on. But in the, he did make mistakes, but most of his great mistakes were in the first couple of years of the war. Did did British officers like Clinton and Cornwallis, did they respect Washington? Um, I, I think to a degree, although Clinton could not make himself call, call Washington General Washington. He referred to him as Mr. Washington. <laughs> so he didn't really regard him as, uh, as an equal, as an officer. But on the other hand, I have seen letters that Clinton wrote uh, and Washington did, did certain things and uh, uh, Clinton praised him for it and said it was a very, a very astute thing that Washington had done. And, and uh, uh, Clinton was always trying to bring, get Washington out on the battlefield and Washington wouldn't go. And uh, Clinton despaired at that. And, and was angry about it at times. But he also said, look, if I was in Washington's shoes, I'd do the same thing. Oh, so, really? Yeah. So, so and the thing, I think they had, he had kind of a grudging admiration for, for Washington. Now, on the other hand, I, I've never seen anything that Washington said really about Clinton one way or another. Um, I, I think Wash Washington's first great adversary was General Howe, William Howe, uh, from late 1775 uh, through 1777. And Washington, I think, pretty early figured out Howe and saw Howe's limitations. And, and in the end, I, I don't think really had a great deal of respect for, uh, for Howe. But um, as far as, as his views on, on Clinton, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen uh, anything that he said one way or another about it. And when you are saying that you haven't seen um, them, you haven't seen Washington say anything about Clinton or on uh, the adverse, what Clinton has said about Washington, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've seen like actual letters written by these people, correct? Right. Yeah, the Clinton Clinton papers are at the University of Michigan, and oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I, somebody bought them. I I don't know ex I don't know the full story about how they they wound up there, but uh, somebody bought his collection of of papers and moved them over to what's called the Clements Library at the University of Michigan. So I, I went there when I worked on my book, Winning Independence, that, that came out last May. I went there in 2019 and spent a few days working in, in, the, in the Clements Library. Washington's papers 
were mostly at the uh, Library of Congress, and but they were scattered around. I, I think uh, there, there's a modern editorial uh, project that's been going forward, I guess, since the 1970s on Washington papers. Must be 50 or 60 volumes of it out by now, and they they collected Washington's papers. I think from about 300 different. Uh, archives in this country and abroad and whatever. Uh, but Was Washington usually made copies. Most of these guys, Jefferson, Adams, whatever, made they made and kept a copy of uh, the letters that that they they wrote. And um, if, if you look at the John Adams papers, for example, on microfilm. They're they're pretty difficult to to read because you're you're oftentimes looking at his copy, and he the the ink would bleed through the paper and make it all all smudged and difficult to read. But most of them had, I mean, they worked on their penmanship because they didn't have typewriters, they didn't have computers, right. obviously. So they they wrote by hand. And uh, Washington had a extremely and Adams too, very good handwriting. Um, and, and Jefferson as well, so pretty easy to read. The the one um, that that gets really difficult is Abigail Adams, and her her writing was very good to begin with, but then as she got older, uh, she got rheumatoid arthritis, and it made her writing almost illegible. It's very difficult to read when she gets up uh, in her late fifties or or sixties. Are these open to the public? Because we are actually spending a week at uh, in Ann Arbor this week, and I figure that's something we could do if yeah, if, if it's open to the public. Uh, I, you know, as far as I know, and I I wrote in advance. You, you can look at just look at the way uh, the Sir Henry Clinton papers online, and you'll find the Clements Library, and uh, there's a large index there of the the papers with different boxes and files and whatever so i wrote them in advance and told them wh what i was looking for and when I, what day i was coming and uh so when i got there on that monday morning to start they had the boxes and the files that i had requested right on a cart waiting for me so um, I, that's as much as I know. Yeah, about. you're right. Mm -hmm. they, they, didn't, they didn't really ask any questions. I don't think so. I think they, they probably are uh, open to, to the general public. Now, I, now, given the pandemic now, I, I don't know. whether Because yeah. I, I went in 2019, and I don't know whether they, they have opened uh, once again for, for scholarship or 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 what? I mean, I, I know, the, I, I taught at the University of West Georgia and still live in the town where I taught. And the library that I use, and I have an office in the library, in fact, it was closed <clears throat> from March of 2020 until about July, I think, of 2021. It was closed for about 14 months. So nobody could go up into the into the stacks. 
I suspect Clements Library is reopened, but I, I don't know. Oh, and what about the papers? You know, I, I'm sure everyone wants to get their hands on a paper uh, or a letter from Washington or Adams or Clinton or even Abigail Adams. Um, how do you come across the letters written by soldiers? I figure that those probably weren't as um, saved or preserved. That's right. Most of them were, were literate, especially in the northern uh, states. Um, they had a much higher literacy rate than was true in the South. But most of them just either didn't, uh, probably just didn't save their their correspondence or it got destroyed along the way. I mean, that's, that's, I, when I taught, I always told my students, look, if, if, if your parents have any letters or grandparents have any letters, you may not think they're consequential, but a historian down the road may, may find things in there that are really important and have them put them in an archives because things happen. You know, there are floods or fires and even a lot of famous people from the past, their, uh, their, their letters uh, got destroyed. I mentioned General William Howe, commander of the British Army from 1775 through 77. His house in England burned around 1815 or so, and, and virtually all of his papers were destroyed. And following Samuel Adams's death, um, somebody who, who lived in, in the house that Adams had lived in um, had access to the papers. And guess what he did with them? He used them in the fireplace. Oh, no. So there's virtually no, none of Samuel Adams's private correspondence uh, existing. Oh, my God. I, can you, can you imagine John, that? John, John Adams was, I mean, he was fortunate in that uh, he had several children, and one of the children was John Quincy Adams, and who went on to become president himself. So he really took care of, of Adams's uh, papers and got them eventually into the Boston Public Library. And there's a big collection of them there in, in the Boston uh, Public Library today. And Washington kept, I mean, he was very careful about keeping his papers during the war. And when, when the war ended and he came back from New York to Mount Vernon, he loaded the papers into a, a wagon and brought them, or wagons probably because there were so many of them, and brought them back to Mount Vernon. And um, he, he then in the 1780s, uh, had one of his former officers come and live at Mount Vernon and begin organizing his correspondence. And so, you know, most of his letters survived, but Martha Washington, George died in 1799, and uh, Martha lived for two or three years beyond that, and she burned all of the correspondence between her and George. So there's, I think she missed three letters. Those are the only three letters that exist wow. today of their correspondence. And Jefferson's wife died in the early 1780s. 
And before Jefferson died, he destroyed all of his correspondence uh, with his wife. So we don't have any letters between uh, Jefferson and Martha Jefferson. That's so, so interesting because John and Abigail have such uh, such a history in their letters, right? Oh yeah, they're they. I mean, they're they're corresponding from the time they met and the time they married, and uh, it's a rich correspondence because John was away for so long, and he's he's in Congress. He goes to Congress in 1774. He's in Congress for months each year, uh, down through 1777. And Abigail never comes to Philadelphia, or Congress actually met in, in Philadelphia and then out in, they get, when the British took over Philadelphia, they had to, Congress had to move to York, Pennsylvania, about 100 miles back west of Philadelphia. But she never comes down there. She, she stays in, in uh, it was called Braintree at the time. It's actually what's called Quincy, uh, Massachusetts today. And so, so they're apart then, and then Adams goes to Europe and as a, as a diplomat, and he and Abigail are separated for five years. They never see one another for five years. So their only way of staying in contact was through writing letters to one another. And they were both literate, and they were both bright. And they wrote very, very good letters. And from a point of view of a, of a historian, they're, they're uh, just really spectacular letters. There's all kinds of, of information in, in those letters. And it's just of, of every conceivable kind. And John Adams, in particular, was an extremely good letter writer. He, when, uh, I mean, his, his letters are, are oftentimes funny and and uh, just easy to read and, and a pleasure uh, to read. But on the other hand, when John Adams tried to write something for, for uh, publication, it was as if he, he froze up. I, I, <laughs> I, I mean, you know I, Thomas Paine, right? <laughs> well, I, I think the problem was he was a, had been a lawyer and uh -huh. you know, he had to write legal briefs. And um, so I think when he was, was writing for publication, he just kind of lapsed back into the, the legalese. And uh, the stuff that he wrote for publication is by and large, some of it is almost unreadable. I mean, it's just, you know, long Latin phrases, and <laughs> whatever, but, but he's a charming letter writer and not just to Abigail. I mean, he, you know, he, John Adams had a, um, a reputation of being kind of a curmudgeon. And um, a lot of people saw Adams as, as unfriendly and unapproachable and whatever. And I, that wasn't my sense of Adams at all. And, and one reason I, I, I don't think that's the case with Adams is that I, I think he came away with more friends from his time in Congress than any other any other of the founders that that I've I've run into. I mean, a lot of the, the guys that were his colleagues really seem to like him and they, they keep on a keep keep a correspondence going with John and he would write back 
to them. And uh, so, you know, that, that doesn't, that doesn't happen uh, very often. I used to always tell my classes when I, I taught, and I taught the American history survey courses that the students had to take. <laughs> they didn't want to take it, but they, they had to take it. <laughs> and uh, so I, I would teach the first half to the Civil War and then the second half from the Civil War down to the, the present. But when we get into World War I, uh, there was Harry Truman, and Harry Truman was just a, he was a young officer. You know, he, this was 25 years or more before he becomes president. And yet, um, in, in the Truman Library in Missouri, there's all these letters that, he, that the guys who served under Truman wrote him at the, you know, over the next 15 or 20 years, and they would write and tell him about their family and the kids they were having. How was Harry doing? I mean, you know, almost nobody ever writes their commanding officer from the military. I mean, they're happy never to see the guy again. <laughs> and, and Adams was sort of like, like that, I think, that, uh, uh, that he did make friends and, uh, um, and not not everybody could do that. Franklin was, I think, pretty much like that uh, as well. That's the vibe I got from your book. Not Washington. I, I mean, I, I don't think Washington ever had a friend in his life in the real sense of the word. <laughs> I, I mean, really, I, I think Washington looked on people in terms of what what can this person do for me. Mm -hmm. That was how he how he looked on others, and uh, I I've never found any any evidence of a of a real friendly relationship uh, that went on for any any length of time. He was just cold and and I I used to um, teach with a guy he was in, 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 the, in the psychology department, and I would talk with him a lot. He knew psychology and I didn't, and ask him about Washington and how he would explain this or that. And um, he, he, uh, his explanation I think is the best that that I've ever heard. And that that is that Washington had his insecurities. I mean, we all have our insecurities, and in Washington's case, he did feel insecure. In I think certainly one of the things was he did he wasn't very formally educated. And his, his father had died when he was young. He didn't have a chance to go off to, to get a formal education, including college education. But here he is around um, Hamilton, who had, had a degree from what's now Columbia University, Adams, who had a degree from what's now Harvard, or what was then, in fact, Harvard, whatever. And that was true of a lot of these people around Washington. So I think he was insecure. And this friend of mine said, that, that people who are insecure uh, oftentimes won't let anybody get close to them for fear they'll they'll discover what it is that they feel insecure about. So he kind of kept people at arm's length and had this sort of Olympian personality. And um, I, I don't think Adams was was like that. Uh, at all, and, and Jefferson wasn't so much like that um, either. But 
but they, you know, they pretty much, they tended to rub shoulders with people from their own rank, so to speak. And, um, uh, but, but they did rub shoulders with others and Washington didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I, I mentioned this when I talked about whirlwind the other day. Um, and I actually, I made a Facebook post about this after reading your book and I tried to argue with some friends of mine, but I feel if, if you were to ask any layman on the streets, um, to name, you know, the top, their top three founding fathers or top five founding fathers. I feel like John Adams doesn't get named. And I feel like you do a really good job at showing how important he actually was for the war, not only winning it, but starting it. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, Washington obviously tends to be in the popular mind, head and shoulders above, above everybody else. And Franklin has always been very popular. I mean, Franklin wrote a lot of things and, and he was, what he wrote was easy to read. And he, he, he was involved in so many different things from scientific experiments to, to creating schools, to creating hospitals. I mean, there's a lot to like in, in Benjamin uh, Franklin. So he's, he's recognized. I don't think Hamilton really was that much except maybe among economists or something until the Broadway play a couple of years ago. Kelsey loves I was that just play. To say. <laughs> it's given him a shot in the arm. So uh, they, and so, but uh, John, John Adams, I think popularity grew. Um, I think is for two things. There, there, there have been a couple of television series about John Adams. One one went back, I, I can't remember, I hadn't thought about it for a long time until right now, but it goes back, I think, until the 1970s, and I think it was on, maybe on public broadcasting or something, but it, it was a multi-part uh, show, and it's been so long ago since I, I've seen it. I'm not, I, I may not all, all of it, uh, may not have been on John Adams. I think some of it was John and then John Quincy and then grandkids and and so forth. But then um, there was another John Adams TV show. And I can't think of the, uh, the actor's name. His dad was commissioner of baseball and he was in a movie called Sideways. Very, he's still around. The actor's still around. He, he yeah. did a great, great, great job. Paul Giamatti. Yeah, there you go. And he, he did a really great job uh, depicting Adams. I think he just, he nailed him. So not that, that's not true of all of the, in that sh uh, series, I don't think. I, I don't think the guy that did uh, Washington or Jefferson did particularly good jobs with him, but, but Giamatti did a good one. So, so Adams has got more popular as a result of that. And then David McCullough's book on Ad John Adams, a biography of Adams that came out sometime in the 1990s, I, I think. I can't remember the year that it came out. It was a bestseller. Um, uh, and in fact, the, the Giamatti series may have actually have even uh, been drawn from, from McCullough's book. I'm not, not sure about that. So Adams says, you know, he's gotten a good deal of 
of play of late and and he's uh, he's certainly more you know more popular in New England than he is in Georgia. You don't hear that much where, where I live. You don't hear that much about him down here, but in New England, you you do hear a lot about John Adams and Abigail and and now uh, you know fifty in the last forty or fifty years, historians have have really uh, been conscious of the fact that there were actually women living back in the 18th century. <laughs> they, they forgot about that for a long time. And so now there's, a, you know, a great many historians are female and, and male and female historians write about uh, the experiences of women in back in early American history and in Europe and and whatever. So uh, there's a great deal has has been written about Abigail over the the last few years, and she not she was really not not a great deal was was said about uh, Abigail. I, I'm not sure there was you know the, there were there were published some of the letters between John and Abigail were published as early as maybe 1900 or real early in the in the 20th century. But uh, I'm probably wrong about this, but I don't think there was a, a major biography written of Abigail Adams until about 40 years ago. And a, a woman named Phyllis uh, uh, Levin wrote a, a big, thick biography of, of Abigail Adams that came out. So, and then there, uh, Edith Gallus at Stanford has written a great deal uh, about uh, about Abigail, so so now people are are more interested in in her. But it just kind of bounces around. There's a lot of people out there like history, but they don't like military history, so they don't read much about um, George Washington, or they they're into economic history, so they'll read about Hamilton as Secretary of the Treasury. It's just all all what people are are into. What what I took from um, Orwin is that it's a you know it's nonfiction or you're you're it's it's a historical lesson, but it's it's such a different time and it's so long ago and these these founding fathers were kind of um, kind of like superheroes for us. You can almost listen to it or read it as if it was a fiction story and and still get a lot from it. Well, I mean, um, they didn't, I don't think they looked on, they certainly didn't look on themselves that way, at least at the start. But then I think once once the war, once they gained victory in the war and the nation is established, and then especially um, after they get over the rocky first few years of the war, and it looks like there is a good chance the United States is going to survive, then then they do begin going into the, um, the sort of the American pantheon. And, you know, in, in 1826, on, incredibly, on July 4th of 1826, which happened to be the 50th anniversary of the, of the signing of the, Declar or the Declaration of Independence, uh, Jefferson and John Adams died that same day. On the same day? Same day, July 4th, 1826, 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. And so I think 
there were celebrations. They were they were the only two of the five who had been on the committee that wrote the declaration still alive. And so as it approached, they, they got a great deal of attention and people would talk about uh, Washington being the sword of the revolution. Jefferson was the pen of the revolution and Adams was the voice of the revolution, uh, they said. so. They, they certainly by, by 1826, and even before that, I think, the founders were, were being lionized. And, and the first to, to be so uh, was, was Washington, and that was actually during the war. That in um, Washington had a rough go of it in 70, 1776 and 1777. He, he made a lot of mistakes, came close to being defeated, did suffer some serious defeats. And in, in uh, late 77, early 78, there, there were people who wanted to dump Washington and uh, find a new commander. And the person that they were focusing on was General Horatio Gates. I mean, he was the one that defeated Burgoyne and led to Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga, and he had been a, a British officer who had had uh, uh, despaired for England and moved from England to Virginia about five years before the war began. So a lot of people wanted to, to dump Washington and make Gates the commander of the, uh, of the Continental Army. And I think Congress saw the danger. I mean, they thought, you know, if we, if we dump Washington's going to be so divisive, it'll destroy morale and tear the country apart. And so during the winter of 1778, Congress, I think, set out to deliberately make Washington a great American icon. And Adams, John Adams, put it uh, best, I think. He said that they, that Congress wanted to make Washington the, the central stone in the geometrical arch, as he, as he put it. So Washington really becomes kind of untouchable and unquestionable from that point on. And that's when people begin celebrating Washington's birthday. It was first celebrated February 22nd, 1778 at Valley Forge during the Valley Forge winter. And so, and then it begins to be celebrated around the country uh, year in, year out. And people began dedicating books to Washington. If they had public banquets, there would be toasts uh, to Washington. <clears throat> and a lot of it, I think, was, was really heartfelt on the, I mean, Congress might've been the architect behind designing this iconography, but, but many people did look on Washington as, as for, for one thing, embodying what they believed the, the revolution was all about, that he, he did favor self-government, he wasn't a monarch, um, and he believed in republicanism, that is, government by the, uh, by the people. Uh, there were no scandals on Washington's part. He hadn't misused the power that he had been given. And, you know, as I mentioned a long time ago, there was a, 
great fear of standing armies at the time. A lot of lot of dictators had previously been generals. Washington hadn't tried to misuse his his uh, his authority. So I think there were a lot of people out there who general genuinely really respected uh, uh, Washington. And uh, so Congress might have been the architect, but can only do that if the people are willing to uh, to accept what you're you're trying to do, and the people did accept it. I think, and maybe not quite the coincidence of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams dying on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but we are actually recording this on President's Day. It is Monday, the 21st. George Washington's birthday is tomorrow, and when we set the date, I that never even crossed my mind. So um, <laughs> I circled back to make sure you're still available. I'm like, oh my God, it's actually Washington's birthday tomorrow. So I thought that was cool. And I, it kind of, you know, originally we had said that we were going to talk a lot about Abigail and John. Um, but I think in honor of George Washington's birthday, why not throw him a bone too, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, he deserves it. I mean, he's, he certainly, one, one of Washington's biographers called him the indispensable man. And um, I, I think that's probably pretty accurate. I, 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 I can't see anybody else who, who, um, who, who could have pulled off what Washington did. I mean, he, he did make mistakes, as I've said, but, but he, he managed to keep the army intact. He had a lot of officers that were, I think, uh, potentially very dangerous guys. I mean, they were ambitious and they wanted their hands on power. He kept them, kept them in check. And he became kind of a figure that the people around the country could rally around. You know, every, every other country in the world, at least in the Western world, had a monarch, a king at this point. And the king was the symbol that the people could rally around. The Americans didn't have that until they had Washington to to rally around. So, um, and and I can't think of anybody else who could have done a better job uh, with the with the army, all things considered, uh, than 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 Washington. Maybe very late in the war, uh, General Nathaniel Green. He he was Washington's choice. <clears throat> as as to be Washington's successor. And Washington early on told Congress, if anything happens to me, I hope you'll pick Nathaniel Green as my successor. And Green was eventually, uh, in 1781, he became commander of the Continental Army in the South, and he did a magnificent job. And I think if, if something had happened to Washington this con in 70, late 1780, let's say, uh, it's conceivable that Green could have done a good job over the last year or so uh, of the war. Um, so you mentioned that you have a new book out. So uh, I, the book I've been referring to is uh, your book called Whirlwind, The American Revolution and the War That Won It. And I feel like that book, um, as I described a couple weeks ago on the podcast, does uh, probably the first half of the book is really there's it's before the war. It's about the, you know, uh, th there weren't a lot of revolutionaries in early, in the early 1770s. 
So it's a lot about the conflict with Great Britain and and why there was a war to begin with. Um, your new book that came out in 2021, um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's a book entitled Winning Independence. And uh, I don't have a copy here to, <laughs> to hold up on the screen so you can see it. It's in my office up in the library. But um, it's a book that essentially deals with the last four years of the Revolutionary War, 1778 through 1781. And I subtitle a book, it's, it's uh, the, the Decisive Years of the Revolutionary War. And uh, I, I wanted to write the book for, for a couple of reasons. One is that 1777 ends with Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga. And I think virtually every um, textbook on American history that's ever been written characterized uh, that as the turning point of the Revolutionary War. I, I, I don't for a moment question that it was a, a pivotal event in the war. I mean, Britain loses an entire army uh, at Saratoga. So it's a consequential uh, development. But um, I, I think a war, as long as the Revolutionary War had several turning points, and, and Saratoga was one of them. But because it was always described as a turning point, I think a great many people out there feel like, well, a war was over when, when Burgoyne surrendered. Uh, that's the turning point of the war. So from that point on, independence was guaranteed. And I don't feel that at all. I mean, it's four more years before they finally secure independence. So it was a long, tough war. And independence was anything but guaranteed. Morale breaks down in the U.S. The economy collapses. People get tired of long wars, and especially if they're stalemated wars. And this became a stalemated war after 1778. So I wanted to write the book for one reason, uh, to show that, um, that, that just what I said, that, that there, there were several more years of war. Uh, Saratoga didn't win the war for America. It still had to be won, and it wasn't won until 1781 at Yorktown. <clears throat> and the other reason I wanted to, to write the book was that I felt that Sir Henry Clinton, who was the commander of the British Army, was really an extraordinary general, but he has has been uh, dismissed. I mean, he, Britain loses uh, while he's in command, and he's he, his reputation has suffered for uh, for that that reason. But you have to remember, the uh, be, because of Burgoyne's surrender, uh, and because France comes into the war. A lot of the British uh, troops are are they're redeployed elsewhere, mostly to the Caribbean to, to fight against the the French. So he has a much smaller army, and where his predecessors fought only against the Americans, he has to fight against the Americans and the French. So he has uh, really a tough road to to uh, to to go, and. Um, uh, uh, so I, I think it's unfair to to um, to depict to depict him as uh, 
as a failed general. I think he was the best strategist among the British generals who just was dealt a bad hand. But also, um, th there was a professor of history at the University of Michigan in the 1950s. He was a distinguished scholar. He went on to, in fact, edit the Benjamin Franklin papers at Yale for many years. But he wrote a, um, an, uh, uh, an account of, of Clinton that came out, I think, about 1953 or 1954. And it's what's called psychohistory. That is, he tried to psychoanalyze Clinton and see why, what, what, he, what drove Clinton and whatever. And I, I have reservations of, about psychohistory to begin with. I mean, you can't you can't put the historical figure on the couch and and probe and and examine the person. And and in Clinton's case, virtually all of his private correspondence had disappeared. So you don't really have a window into the guy's um, inner self, so to speak. But this this historian and this psycho psychological profile depicted Clinton as so messed up psychologically that he was he was doomed to fail that he he would not he could not exercise the power that he was given and uh, he was doomed to fail and I, I think that, that that analysis is just rubbish and so I, I tried to debunk that and uh, take another look at at Clinton's um, generalship, and and so th those are the two reasons that I I wrote uh, winning independence. That's so interesting to combine the worlds of like behavioral analysis and history. <laughs> right. Well, I mean it's it's been around for a long time. Early in the twentieth uh, century, I forget the year a writer named Eric Erickson, who, who actually was a psychologist, wrote a, a book on Martin Luther called Young Man Luther. And that was really the first uh, shot of psychohistory. And it created a huge stir in the, the 1920s and 30s and 40s. And a lot of people got on the bandwagon. And then there were psychological studies of Hitler and Woodrow Wilson and, you know, all many of the big figures around. And I suspect even as we're talking, there are probably graduate students around the country writing dissertations that psychoanalyze Donald Trump. <laughs> I, I think that, that's going to go on uh, on and on, I think. And there were, there were similar things on Richard Nixon after, after Watergate. So... But I, I just don't, it, it has kind of fallen out of favor. It's not that I'm the only one that, that has reservations about it. But for the most part, I mean, you just, um, you, you know, you can't get, uh, as I said, you can't put the figure on the couch. And especially if, if it's somebody back in the 18th century or, or earlier. And whose version are you getting? Because like you said, you know, people look at Washington one way when he may have been a different way. So it's hard to get a proper analysis when they're not here to ask some questions and to study their behavior. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I, you know, just, uh, I mean, we've heard it on TV over 
the last couple of weeks, there, there are plenty of people on there who want to psychoanalyze Vladimir Putin <laughs> now. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, it's pretty untrustworthy. And I, I remember a lot of books came out right after World War II uh, taking uh, psychological profiles of Hitler. And then as more and more and more paperwork became available and people began to gain more and more insights uh, to Hitler, I think the, most of those early psychological profiles have been relegated to the dustbin. I mean, I'm not saying that, mm -hmm. that writers championed Hitler. They, they, they still denigrate Hitler for, for good reasons, but, but they just put a little veracity in those psychological uh, profiles. Yeah, definitely not enough information. <laughs> right, yeah, that's right. Well, I think we could talk, I could talk to you for, John, I, I could ask you so many questions about so many different things. Um, you Mostly are- Mostly because you can't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to throw my wife under a bus. Uh, I asked her to name her top three founding fathers and she her first answer was Abraham Lincoln. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's not true. <laughs> it's not true? No. All I said was, I hope I can name three. Well, you you said Abraham Lincoln. I don't recall saying Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> who were the other two? I think you did get John Adams, right? Because I've been talking about him. Okay. And who was the other one? Lincoln, John Adams? And... Probably Thomas Jefferson, if oh, I had okay. to guess. Okay. Yeah. I watched Hamilton. I should have said Hamilton. I knew that one for sure. <laughs> well, certainly Lincoln, I mean, is a, was a great president, great figure in American history. So you're on pretty good ground. Maybe not a founder uh, <laughs> of the of the country. Although, um, you know, Lincoln Lincoln did one one thing, and that is that he in the Gettysburg Address, he really, I think. Uh, kind of brings the Declaration of Independence to light. He goes back to the all men are created equal idea and and says, and really, it is all men. Because by then, a lot of people were saying, well, Jefferson really didn't mean all men when he said that. He wasn't thinking of black men or whatever. But um, Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address makes it clear it's all men are created equal and all are endowed by their creator with natural rights among which are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. So, and I, you know, I've been to a lot of history conferences where there were debates, who was the greatest president? Was it Lincoln or was it Washington? And I, I'm, I'm torn between the two. I, I just usually toss a coin on that. Both, both were, were incredible. Washington, I think, probably without Washington's presidency, the country may not have survived until 1860 for for Lincoln to be around as president. But it did survive, and and Lincoln, you know, got it through the Civil War and and the Emancipation Proclamation and, and other things. But I I would in rating the presidents, I I would rate. Uh, Washington, Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt, all is, those would be the three, three greatest uh, presidents from my perspective. 
and of the founders, I, you know, I, I don't know that I, I mean, each, each played a different role in the, in the, in the revolution. Each was important for different things. And, um, uh, Franklin's was an important diplomat. Adams was extremely important congressman. Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, greatest document in American history. And Washington was the indispensable man with the army. So each played a, his own vital uh, role uh, there. And like you were saying, I love you know, Washington lays the groundwork for those future presidents to take that information and further it so we're all about ranking and we're all about when you when we talk about our movies we rank them you know best disney movies and best whatever so i'm I'm glad you're able to throw some rankings out there for us okay sure um just before or just while i still have you and like i said because we do a lot of movie stuff uh, you've already mentioned the two series on john adams is there any uh, any other Hollywood depiction of the Revolutionary War? Like maybe um, I don't know if you've ever seen the the Patriot with Mel Gibson, or is there is there anything that sticks out as something that you would recommend people to watch? Um, and on no. the other hand, is there anything that's like so not accurate? <laughs> well, I I think there were a lot of inaccuracies in the in the Patriot, I, but I but I generally encouraged my my students to watch it because there, there was enough about the partisan war. And I think the partisan war down South was, was crucial in 1780 and, and 81. So I would tell them, well, you know, go ahead and, 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 uh, and watch the, the movie. Uh, there was, golly, I, I used to show a movie in my classes and, um, I, I can't, I can't think, um, of the name of it, I, I want to say it was just, it was called uh, Revolution, but uh, it came out around the time of the Bicentennial. And um, I can't think of the, it was extremely well-known actor played a revolutionary figure in the, in the movie and a British officer was played by, um, golly, I can't, can't think of his name. His son, his son became a, a very popular actor and had a popular TV series here a few years ago about terrorism and whatever. I don't know if it rings any bells with you. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I can't, I can't draw it. I can't think of the, the guy's name and, and and who it was, but I think the movie was called Revolution, and it was kind of, it it, it um, popped up and had kind of a left wing interpretation of the revolution, and for that reason, I think it very quickly got swept under the rug. But I I thought it was a uh, it was a movie that was uh, was was worthwhile. I used to I used to show parts of it. In my uh, classes, there were some battle scenes in the movie of the uh, of the fighting and the campaign for for New York that were that were really ex- extraordinarily well done. I think so. I had a, I had a student in my class who had all kind of of uh, video editing 
equipment, and he edited stuff out of the out of the movie, and there's like a two or three minute clip of the fighting in New York, and I would show that, and and some of the uh, the others. I I'm not sure if it was Robert De Niro might have been in it. I, I found it. I've got it. Oh, did you find it too, Ryan? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Al Pacino. Uh, Albert Pacino, yeah. Okay. But you were on, you were on to something with um the show about terrorism because Kiefer Sutherland, yeah, there, there you go. Yeah, yeah. His, his dad played a British officer. Yeah. And that's exactly who I was thinking of when you said about the terrorists because I think it was the Twenty Four show or something like that that Kiefer yeah, Sutherland right. was in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I ne- we are I, addicted to movies here. <laughs> yeah, I ne- I never watched that show. I've seen Keeper Sutherland in other movies, but his dad Donald Sutherland, I've seen in several movies, and uh, he he played played the British officer probably only because they couldn't get uh, Boris Karloff to play him. Or I mean, he played he was played played the British officer as a vile human being. But if if you ever get a chance to watch that movie, uh, watch it. It's it's good. Yeah, in the Patriot, there's a scene where the the British officers they lock the people into a church and then they light the church on fire. And I feel like that that didn't happen. No, no. Uh, now there were plenty of atrocities in especially in the war in the South. There was a real civil war, Southerners against Southerners. Um, and lots of lots of um, bad things happened, but but that didn't didn't happen. Uh, Tarleton's Quarter, right? Tarleton. Oh, and, and that, Tarleton. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I just I just recall that they were they were very brutal in their in their uh, battles. Well, he he um, there, there was a a battle. Uh, fought in in May of, of 1780, right after the fall of Charleston, and I, I go into it in in the book Winning Independence. In fact, and uh, Tarleton caught up with a, a, a force of retreating Virginians, about 300 or so, just before they could get out of South Carolina and into North Carolina, and um, they they fought and. Um, the Tarleton essentially overran them in, in no time. And then a massacre took place following uh, the, the, the capitulation. And um, I, I, I think it's pretty clear that Tarleton didn't order it, but he couldn't get control of his men, maybe didn't try that hard to get uh, control of his men. So from that point on, uh, he was thought of as bloody Tarleton and and uh, the Americans would would not give quarter to the to the British troops. So the Americans reciprocated with with massacres of their own, particularly a place like uh, Kings Mountain, for example, in in South Carolina in October of 1780. So I, I did just look. Um, I will let you go. You you've been you've been with us for over an hour. I, I told you I'd only keep you for a half hour. <laughs> Oopsie. Uh, winning independence is also on audible. So I'm going to put that in my, in my, uh, in my queue. Okay. And anyone as audible, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. If you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. Um, whirlwind 
is also on there. Uh, and John, you, you've got a lot of books. I, I see that you, you have you in nine books. Uh, it's more than that. I'd have to go back and count them up. I think it's 13 or 14. I, I wrote my, my first book came out in 1977. So I, I, you know, I, I went, I, when I was a sophomore in college, I really got turned on to history and, and, uh, by a professor that, that I had. And, um, uh, I decided he, he didn't lecture. He, he, had us buy five paperback books. And each day we had to read about 50 pages of a book and then we would discuss the book in class. And I just really got caught up in it. And, and uh, I went in one day and I had thought, well, I'd, you know, I'd like to become a writer. I'd like some of these people that, that I'm reading now. And I asked Dr. Painter, how do you become a writer? Do you have to be wealthy? And his response was, hell no, you teach in college. And so <laughs> when I walked out and then I said, well, how do you how do you get to teach in college? And he explained graduate school to me, which I had no idea about. But when I walked out of his office, I think I was 19 years old. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to grad school, wanted to teach in college and I wanted to write. And I've been fortunate enough. That's that's what I was able to do. And I retired a little bit earlier than I had planned so I would have more time uh, for for writing and um, I'm, I'm still still writing so so yeah are you working on another one I am yeah, yeah. and what is the subject well, of this it, one if you don't mind it's, it's a book that's uh, on the Revolutionary War and kind of an international history of the Revolutionary War uh, that's pegged to come out in 2025 you know april of 2025 will be the beginning of i think it's called i always have to stop and think the sesi centennial the 250th anniversary of the revolutionary war and so it's pegged to come out uh around april 19th which would be the 250th anniversary of lexington and concord and the first battles of the uh, of the revolutionary war so i'm working on on that that'll be my last one and uh i bet it won't be uh, at, my, at my age it's gonna be so so that'll be the that'll be the last one but it's it's um it's gonna take me uh this year and next year to finish it up i have to get it in by by uh, december 31st of 23. so is that uh, when you say world history, you're talking about like how important France was and right. put as much focus on Britain and France and the neutral nations and Europe as as on the United States during the war and try to weave all that together and see what I can can come up with. That's like that's another thing, though, that I think the the average person don't they might not even realize that France was in the war. Uh, and we don't win that war without France. Wait, that's right. Absolutely, yeah. The American victory hinged on on uh, France's help of before 1778. Then the alliance that's that's uh, uh, put together at, at the beginning of 1778, and then France sends over a navy. Then they send over an army, and uh, before that, they had sent over. 
lots and lots of artillery pieces. Every every art piece of artillery that General Gates had at Saratoga was French-made artillery. So I mean, you know, Burgoyne would have never been defeated uh, without without the without Fr uh, French assistance and. Uh, they, you know, they send over uniforms and muskets and all kinds of things that were just uh, crucial for keeping the United States going in 1776 and 17, especially 1777. And then they come into the war. Yeah, because people might not realize it now because France's military is not comparable to the United States at this point, but back then France was a global power. Right. It was a major power. Yeah. They, they, so it, it had uh, uh, an army of about 250,000 uh, men. So uh, I, I saw on television at noon, I don't know if this is true or not, that uh, virtually the entire Russian army is, on the border of Ukraine. And I think that's 150,000. I thought surely they have a bigger army than that. So I, I don't know what size, what, I think that must have been an erroneous report, but they, the American army in the Revolutionary War never, never topped about 30,000. So, and the British never had more than at any one time about 35,000 men in, in America. And uh, an in interesting sidelight on that is by the time you get to late 1780, there are more Americans serving in the British Army than are serving in the Continental Army. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned morale earlier. That, that was that's, uh, um, a, a, a cogent reminder of how, how shaky morale had gotten uh, in this country. But yeah, France, France was a major major power, France and Prussia, Russia and Britain, those were the really major powers in Europe in the, in the 18th century. Spain, well, Spain too. And I'm sure we can learn a lot more about this in uh, 2025 when, <laughs> when your book comes I out. I hope so. All right, John. Well, we thanks again. Like, I can't thank you enough for sitting down with us. Um, I hope, like I said, our listeners aren't going to be used to a history lesson, but I really hope they appreciate it because um, you, you do such a good job telling history. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. You made Brian's life. <laughs> you cheese heads take care. So. <laughs>